0: great to have you here thank you for joining us
1: Woo! Oh. <laughs> thanks for inviting me but russ
0: we would love to hear a bit more about you i think anyone that listens knows that we're a fan of your work but it's interesting to know how you got to your work because you're actually a medical doctor i think by background aren't you
1: yeah i was i was a gp for many years Um, But what happened was, as a GP, I I became more and more interested in the psychology of health and well being. And I became less and less interested in the kind of physical and, and, um, you know, biochemical sides of it. And I I started to lose interest in writing prescriptions and making diagnoses. And uh, I, I, my, my GP consultation started getting longer and longer and longer. Um, and I was spending a lot more time talking to people about their feelings and their emotions and their stress levels. And I started to think, ah, I could be in the wrong job here. <laughs> so, uh I I started to explore, obviously, uh, uh, with a medical background, psychiatry seemed like the first choice. But um, when I looked into it, there was just so much emphasis on prescribing medication, uh, which didn't particularly interest me. Um, so... Then I looked at psychology, uh, but five years more university was kind of uh, a bit of a no-no. So I just started uh, attending uh, workshops and courses in uh, in counselling and therapy and gradually kind of strung a few bits and pieces together of different models. Um, I started changing my GP sessions. I started uh, offering some counselling sessions um, as alternatives to uh and gradually over a period of years, I changed a uh, career from GP to therapist. It's
0: really interesting. I mean, it's interesting on many levels, but one thing I find particularly interesting is um, I have a family of doctors and I was encouraged to do medicine and psychiatry. And I uh-huh. I backed away and did psychology, but I'm still fascinated by the medical profession. And I do work with doctors. And I did, a, um, I did one research paper, which was looking at, Patient outcomes, and how um, empathy and emotional resilience will obviously improve patient outcomes. So, in the one sense, I'd say it's a loss to the medical profession that you've left because you know <laughs> you're one of these people that actually would have been improving patient outcomes, no doubt, quite considerably. But on the other hand, I think <laughs> you've benefited many other people through what you've done. Um, so.
1: It was it was interesting because you know that old saying that money can't buy you happiness. And it, as I transitioned from from you know medical doctor to therapist, my income went down and down and down. But my sense, you know, therapist earns about a third of what a doctor owns. But uh, but my fulfillment and satisfaction through the work that I was doing went up and up and up. So it was. Uh, it's a very interesting journey um, and uh, uh, I have never looked back, really. I mean, there's a few things I miss. I miss, you know what I do miss? I miss the quick fix. Mm. Like as a as a doctor, it's great. Someone's got a big boil and you just lance it, you know, <laughs> all the pus flies out and it's fixed. Oh, you miss you know, it. The, They've got a big gash and you sort of stitch it up uh, you know or someone's got undiagnosed asthma and you diagnose it and give them an inhaler that that kind of stuff is quite uh you know i, I do miss that but the majority of uh, of stuff um I, I don't miss at all I, it was always the, the psychological because you know why do people go to the gp you know most of the time people go when they're stressed run down um, you know, and and virtually all medical conditions have got a significant psychological component to them. Uh, and they're much worse when you're stressed, you know. so. Um.
2: And it, I think I don't know if you found that during this pandemic, Russ, I don't know in your area what it's been like, but actually that seems to come out a lot more now because the mental health and wellbeing of of people has also been significantly reduced. So the impact of that on the physical side has been seen quite extensively. And I think, and I hope that people are more, like she said, more empathetic towards that. So people who have never had any wellbeing issues um, or any psychological issues um, Mm -hmm. have actually started to have them. So they can be more empathetic to people that have struggled in those ways. I think for me, the discussions that we've had, and I don't know what your thoughts on it is that people almost try and put the psychology into a medical model and it's just like, okay, this is the issue, let's do that. And then it's fixed when actually this isn't, it isn't part of that way of working. This is a lifelong journey that people go through when actually gaining psychological flexibility is again, you, you kind of get there and then and then you don't get there, you notice something else, you learn something new and then you grow again. So it's, yeah. it's, I think that's that's hopefully that more into this. And I guess that's what you're saying from your GP world is actually there's so much more to people than just a box tick done. And it's yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're dealing with the human condition, really. Uh, and uh, the thing with the human condition is you've got it your whole life from the moment you're born to the moment you die and uh, challenges show up. And yeah, I, I do think that, the, the, well, there's a lot of professions that try to box psychological suffering and you know kind of just treat it as this neat little package and you know we'll we'll focus on that and then you'll be right and of course uh, life isn't like that it's messy being human.
0: It's um, one of the things I've been doing during lockdown is working with frontliners and some of the ICU doctors um, and nurses particularly doctors one of the things that they struggle with Is they've been brought up through this medical model so they've been brought up to believe that things can be fixed but also that i think there's a a belief in infallibility to an extent if you're a doctor you're put on slightly on a pedestal and they've really found it difficult to get their head around this i can't just fix this you know I've, i've seen i've had trauma i've been through some really horrible experiences seeing like death upon death upon death, and I haven't been able to sort people out. This takes time. And it's interesting from that perspective, I think, that medicine's probably an extreme example, but as society, we're not brought up to understand that we can't fix things. And so yes. it's quite a shift for you, isn't it, to move from medicine into a completely different view of the world.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with all of that. And I would add that, you know, particularly high power professions you know not not just medicine uh, but medicine being a good example but law and the armed forces uh, and even in in the world of business you know it's like it's still perceived as a sign of weakness if you've got stress or anxiety you know so you're not going to get a lot of vulnerability in those professions people kind of pretend that they don't suffer, uh, that they've got it all under control, that they're fine, you know, and, um, uh, you know, I I get the sense this is very gradually starting to change, but there's a long way to go. So the illusion, what happens then is you compare your insides to everyone else's outsides, and everyone around you seems on the surface to be fine and coping well, and you don't know what they're feeling and all those thoughts going through their head and all those emotions surging through their body, yeah.
2: Yeah, I love that film with Mel Gibson. It's about what women want, or something like that. And he he gets electrocuted in a bath and then he can hear all of the women's thoughts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, women what, what women really think, I think it's good. Cool. So.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. And and that's where what you're saying, actually, it would be so interesting if everyone understood what was going on the inside and then people's perspective of everybody else and themselves would be just fascinating. It'd be slightly overwhelming, um, I think, though, wouldn't it? At <laughs> <laughs> would the be beginning, good. it would be crazy. <laughs> It would make, it, yeah, I mean, it would be, we, it would be an interesting world because I often thought, you know, and I explain to people like as a, as a psychologist in, in, in sport when, you know, people always go, you're asking a lot of questions. It's like, well, you know, we don't have a computer I can just plug into your brain that kind of can give me an understanding of what's happening inside and your thoughts and, and how those impact what, what decisions you make and, and how you live your, your life. So the only way I can do that is actually to ask questions and have conversations with you and then explore that because you might not know some of the things that go on as well. So, yeah. and, and I guess that's probably the same as, 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 as both of you in how you go about your worlds, but it's, it's, how do you understand what is going inside? And I love, I love your analogies that you use Russ in when you're working, is that inside outside and. And your kind of comparisons to what goes on from an act perspective and the way you talk about experiential avoidance and and how that comes out because I know that when you explain that that resonates with a lot of people and how you know avoidance is such a big strategy that we all use in in life and sometimes we're not aware of it and pointing that out people go ah that's why (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah
2: one of my questions was how did you come across act and how did you then kind of move forward in that world
1: um well so i uh before act i was doing um cbt would your listeners be familiar with that um you know uh which is i think is is by far the most popular model of therapy in the world and been around for much longer than ACT. Um, and there were things in CBT that I really liked. And there were things in CBT that I really didn't like. Like it was just massive emphasis on challenging and disputing your negative thoughts. Yeah. And no matter yeah. how much I did that, you know, my mind would just keep coming back and telling me that I was stupid and dumb and a loser and all this kind of stuff. So th- there were there was some really cool stuff in CBT, but there was some stuff that I didn't really gel with. Uh, at the same time, I kind of discovered the work of Jon Kabat-Zinn who is Sort of the father of mindfulness in the west and has written um, uh, his first person to sort of study mindfulness scientifically and has wrote numerous best-selling books like full catastrophe living and wherever you go there you are and he invented a model called mindfulness-based stress reduction um, showing how mindfulness meditation can powerfully help deal with stress and i was very interested in that Um, But it's very hard uh, getting people to meditate. A lot of people don't like it. A lot of people find it boring. Uh, A lot of people give it up really quickly. Um, And then there was also I was very intrigued by the work of Viktor Frankl. Um, uh, Fiona, you're nodding your head there.
0: I refer to him in my book, actually. That's oh, why right. it's
1: you, Russ. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, so in case your listeners don't know, Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist who was interned in Auschwitz concentration camp. And he, he wrote many books, but by far his most famous is Man's Search for Meaning, uh, where he talks about how even amidst the horrors of Auschwitz people could still access a sense of meaning and purpose and find something to live for uh, and if they could do that then they were much more likely survive, to survive than those who gave up on life um, and so I was trying to put these things together bits of CBT bits of mindfulness bits of kind of Viktor Frankl's meaning and purpose stuff and, and not doing it very well and then a mate of mine said check out this act stuff you know act uh, being the abbreviation for acceptance and commitment therapy and I'd never heard of it and I I went to the bookstore and at that point there was only one so this is 1993 there was only one textbook on it at the time uh, which was co-authored by Steve Hayes Kelly Wilson and Kirk Strozel the pioneers of act so I bought that textbook and I stayed up all night reading it it was a very difficult textbook to read and I finally finished it at about five in the morning and it was like you know it was yeah, for me it was like the clouds parted and there were a hallelujah chorus and there were angels flying around and i was like wow this is amazing this is amazing this brings together all of this stuff, you know, mindfulness without meditation, uh, meaning and purpose in a really practical way through living your values, the kind of all the, you know, really useful behavioral activation stuff of CBT and different ways of dealing with your thoughts without having to challenge and dispute them, and it was like uh, all of this around a central core of self-compassion and acceptance. So it was like wow, that you know, this is it. So it was it was just love at first sight, and and that love affairs. Uh, never it never ended really I guess that's incredible no no no
0: it's incredible and I think I mean I um I I struggled with that original text I I, I did try to go through <laughs> that original text so I, a hats off to you for managing to not only um, read it all but read it all by five
1: in the morning um, <laughs> well I, I won't say that I, I won't say I understood it all but, but I read it all I was a very uh hard textbook to read that but it is I think I
0: mean I think that's one of the things you've done so well is translate it into something that makes sense to people and that people can use and a lot of the time one of the things that frustrates me with psychology is we have a divide between the academic and the real world and I'm sort of partly I'm Lou you probably are as well held at arm's length because you know we're not proper academic psychologists or we're not clinical psychologists we, you know, we're, not- I'm an, <laughs> exactly I'm an occupational loser sports psychologist so we're we're trying to make things practical and pragmatic yeah. and applicable the whole time but there is a divide because there's the written stuff and and the research which is often done actually within a lab if it's fMRI or or on students <laughs> and not actually in the <laughs> real world anyway yeah. um, but the but to, to you, I think that the happiness trap, um, in particular, that was the first book you wrote, was it?
1: Happiness trap. That happiness. That was the first uh, act book I wrote. Yes. Yeah.
0: And and that that's just a, an amazing translation. Was, as I said before, we came on. And when I revisited that, I was like, oh, <laughs> thankfully someone has made <laughs> sense of it. So now I can explain it to other people. So it provided a vehicle for me, which I I hadn't. Um, I, I'd kind of got all the concepts and all the bits to do with act, but I hadn't worked out how to translate it. And you've done that, um, which I know Lou and I both uh, admire. But 1993, so were you were you still a GP at the time when you found that? Uh, I uh,
1: Did I say 1993? I must have Alzheimer's. It was 2003, <laughs> not, not 1993. <laughs> God, uh, I did 19- <laughs> <a year ago. laughs>
0: <laughs> I was thinking, you look know. good for your age, but <laughs> <laughs> uh
1: Yeah, no, two thousand and three uh, was that. Yes, so God, yeah. Uh, what did I do? I so ni- nineteen ninety three. I was still a GP. Yeah, um, two thousand and three. I discovered Act.
2: Um, Have you ever had? You know, you talk about that angels moment and the clouds oh, yeah. parted. This is, you know, love at first sight. As you've developed your understanding of ACT and you've grown and you've, you're explaining it to others now, have there been other things that you've picked up along the way that you've had those types of experiences with or, or is it mainly just been with ACT?
1: Well, I, I'm a, a kind of ACT purist, which I think is, is quite rare in the world of, uh, of therapy and coaching. Um, but I just find that uh, it's such a big model and such a flexible model that um, you know, it really, it, it it really does cater for the human condition. It's it's based on on these six core processes, but within these processes, there's just so many different tools and techniques and strategies and ways of working. I I, uh, I mean, I'm still exploring it. You know, even how many years later, two thousand eighteen years later, there's still more to go. So, I I, I haven't. Felt the need to, to go and and kind of learn or bring in additional stuff. Um, what I did find with that was that a lot of stuff from earlier models that I trained in fitted very nicely with it, so I was uh, able to uh you know um I, I, you know I, like in my trainings i say to people try this on like it's a new suit and if you like the suit that's great there'll be loads of stuff in your wardrobe that goes very nicely with it not everything but a lot of stuff uh, and that's because it's a, a process based model rather than a technique based model it's based on these kind of overarching processes that cut through many models of therapy and coaching and counseling um, as opposed to models where there's a specific technique and you have to do this and this and this, you know.
0: I must say that's one thing I like about the way you write as well, and hopefully I write like that as well. But um, is this, you know, try this? It might not be right for you, because I think you can say, well, there are. If you go with an evidence-based approach, it's more likely to work, but you still might have ten evidence-based techniques and only one of those works for you. It's different to yeah. having a hundred. Techniques where people just sort of go off and say, "Well, try this, try that, try that." So you narrow it down with the evidence base, but you still have to say, like you say, "Try on the suit. What works for you?" And if it doesn't work, that's okay. And I think for a long time, books that helped people understand uh, psychology in a practical way were very much, "You do this, you do that," and if you don't do it, you basically you felt like a failure. It's a bit like you were saying, you know, with with some of the models that you know with CBT, where you're saying, if if I'm not getting rid of that negative thought, then then you kind of get more angry with yourself and you end yeah. up going into this, this sort of rabbit hole where you go round and round and round. That's one of the things I like about the way you write. One of the things I also like about, like you say, is act as a process rather than a technique. So it enables even, uh, it talks about psychological flexibility, obviously, but it also enables psychological flexibility in the way that it works.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, you know, it's um I think people also experience that. Well, certainly a lot of my clients over the years that have kind of gone down the positive affirmations path, you know, if I, if I just repeat these positive affirmations or uh, you know, don't would you remember when the secret was huge and everybody was into that you know ask the universe for what you want and, and of course uh, uh, it's all very exciting in the short term but it doesn't really work in the long term and then you get these quite disillusioned people you know i've read all the books on positive affirmations and i've practiced this and and still my mind's coming up with these negative thoughts you know i'm a failure what's wrong with me you know
2: yeah yeah it's um i it's like a- i like that because so well, no, no, I, I, I like some of that because it, it part of it explains how the brain works, right? And that stress and negative thoughts is just natural, it is part of us, it's what we have, maybe probably more in the UK than in Australia. I think there is research to back that up. Um, <laughs> but you know, we do have that, so actually, you know, it, it's normal, and I think that's one of the biggest things this brings out for me is actually we're all like you know we're understanding the human condition and what it makes what it takes for us to be human and know that that's okay and to notice that to work with that to accept that and then actually act upon the stuff that we want from our worlds and our lives to give us more fulfilling you know satisfying ways of working and 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 how we feel and I think that really helps people that resonates with people
1: I've been working with anyway. Yeah well it surprised me how how much relief people get from knowing that it's normal to have feelings of anxiety it's normal to have negative thoughts you know it's cuz because uh, in the outside world, we're just bombarded by these messages. Don't worry, be happy, think positive, feel good. Um, and, and of course, that just sets you up for unrealistic expectations. So uh, I, I've often found clients had enormous relief just on the very first session from real life. Uh, you know, uh, ACT uh, certainly is very much in favor of ACT therapists and coaches and counselors kind of disclosing this to, uh, to to their clients to kind of normalize it. So I say to my clients, Clients, you know, your mind's a lot like my mind, all those kind of negative things that your mind says to you. You know, my mind says that to me, too. And they're like, you? You? But, but but you're a doctor. You know, you're you're an author. You've written all these books and you've got fabulous curly hair. And I'm like, well... <laughs> Yes. It's the the hair,
0: the hair.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. All of those things. And I've also got a mind that's a lot like yours that criticizes me and judges me and compares me to other people's and tells me they're not good enough story. And we can't stop your mind from saying those things but we can find a new way of responding to it uh, so that it doesn't rule your life or bring you down and it's very different from all the things you've been doing it's very different from challenging those thoughts or trying to replace them with positive ones or trying to push them away or distract yourself it's such a radical uh, radical new way of responding
0: it's um it's interesting as well because i'm thinking of a uh, 20-something-year-old I spoke to earlier this week, and it was about something work-related. It um, uh, was nothing to do with anxiety, but she raised that she wanted uh, to, to more stuff about anxiety in schools, which I agree, but she said, you know, I suffer from anxiety. And I said to her, everyone suffers from anxiety because it's a natural human condition. And one thing that I think we're at risk of, and I'd be really interested to hear your view is – while we're becoming more aware of mental health, we're also kind of labeling something normal as something that's not normal a bit more. And so you have this generation of youngsters coming through that think that there's something, we haven't quite got the message completely through. So they think there's something wrong with them because they're they're suffering from anxiety. And I've got a 14-year-old and I'll say to her, um you know she'll talk about one of her friends that has anxiety i said everyone has anxiety that that's that's how the human brain works we all have anxiety but you know yeah. it's great if we can learn how to manage that but we all have it what's your thought on that so we've got this in terms of the increase in understanding of mental health but then this increase of labeling as well
1: Yeah, well, I think there's, uh, uh, yeah, everyone's much more willing to talk about it now. But uh, the the problem is, uh, they are pathologizing normal human experience. And it's interesting to see clinical words like depression just become part of the everyday conversation. I remember I was horrified, my son was nine years old, when he came home from school, and he said, I'm depressed, Dad, you know, and I said, what do you mean you're depressed? He said, I'm really depressed. I said, well, what happened? You know, he said, well, the teacher confiscated my fidget spinner uh, and, uh, you know, she wouldn't give it back to me and I can't get it back till tomorrow, you know. And, and so, like, he, you know, what he meant was he was sad and disappointed, but he had, at the age of, at nine or ten, latched onto that word depressed. And I was just shocked, you know. Like, no son of mine's going to be depressed. i have a very Famous therapist, you can got be depressed. <laughs> it's like, uh, um, uh, so you've got this kind of pathologizing, and at the same time, you've got these pathological words that are being used in everyday language um, as a substitute for describing emotions. I mean, depression is not an emotion, um, whereas sadness is, or even just, you know, feeling down. Um, and uh, at the, the, the same time, the... Uh, There's lots of I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but certainly in Australia, there's lots of organizations going around doing awareness raising about mental health issues. And they go into workplaces and they teach people to look for the signs of these mental illnesses. And uh, and what's happening, the research is pretty clear, is that it's just actually increasing stress and anxiety. It's increasing stigma against mental health, not reducing it. Um, it, you know, it's it's um, it's unhelpful in the long term, you know, what what we should be doing is kinda, Normalizing uh, stress and anxiety, and helping people understand, you know, how the mind has evolved to think negatively, and and uh, and how the the human biology has evolved so that um, when we're in stressful, challenging situations, we do have uncomfortable feelings and and uh, painful emotions showing up. And and how can we learn to live with that? You
0: know? uh, so, it, it means. It's really interesting. Sorry, Lou,
2: what were you going to say? When you work in sport, it's really interesting how many people who aren't in elite sport think that Olympic athletes or Paralympic athletes, when they go to perform, they're not stressful, they're totally ready to perform, and they're fine when they're nailing the performance. But some of the athletes I work with, when they're atop of a ski slope, about to, you know, their last Olympic run, the medal's on it. Are you telling me they're not stressed? (laughs) They are (laughs) really anxious. No, But the thing is, they are, and they can still perform. And I think when you start explaining that to people, they they kind of think about that and go, yeah, no, I, I kind of get that. Because, you know, it's a culmination of four years of training, or it could be their second Olympic cycle. So you've got eight years of training, let alone they probably started when they were two. They've got so many friends and family and staff and coaches all invested in this one performance on this one day. And they've got to get it right. And uh, it is just obviously anxiety inducing. You're going to have a stress response in that in that particular moment. So when people understand that, they realize, okay, it is it is normal. So I use that quite a lot in my work.
1: Yeah, well, sure. Like my my biggest claim to fame, I think, is uh, is Sir Alistair Cook, the uh, former captain of the. uh, English cricket team uh, mentioned one of my books in his autobiography. Uh, That book was uh, The Confidence Gap. And he mentioned, you know, that he was struggling and uh, his game was going down and he had fallen into this vicious cycle, you know, of trying to control his anxiety, trying to push all those self-doubting thoughts away. Um, And uh, he read The Confidence Gap, which is based on Act Two, and he said it really helped him. So that's kind of like, woohoo, need to get him to (laughs) autograph (laughs) a book for me. But, um, you you know, it's. It was a, a very uh, counter, uh, a counterintuitive message, if you like, because the the common idea of confidence is you push away any doubt, you push away any fear, you eliminate all of those self doubting thoughts, and of course, that doesn't work. It just uh, you just get end up being off your game because you're battling with your thoughts and feelings, a, a battle that you can't win so learning how to mindfully respond to them and let those feelings be there and let those thoughts come and go while you focus your attention on the game uh, is a very much more effective way of responding
2: well the energy it takes for that battle is quite significant and if you let go and 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 you're not in that battle anymore you've got so much more energy to put back into your your sport or, or your whatever you're doing at that moment and and I've you know I've had clients who have experienced that, and it's like just the relief, like you said, you know, we talk about relief. Wow, just the the impact that that has of letting go of that fight is quite incredible.
1: Yeah, Well, I have a, a nice exercise that I've used with uh, kind of uh, um, athletes, numerous athletes that are you know really focused on performance. So what I do is get a bunch of sheets of paper and write down some of the the negative thoughts and difficult emotions that they're struggling with and that they keep trying to push away and scrunch them up into little balls. Then I get a cup of water uh, and I get them to hold it at arm's length as far away as possible, filled up to the brim. And the challenge is you have to keep that cup of water held at arm's length and you must not spill any of it. I put a towel on the floor as well. Uh, (laughs) And then I say, I'm going to throw these thoughts and feelings at you and you have to make, you have to hit them away. You have to hit them away um, and they're not allowed to land on you. And then I just start throwing, you know, two at a time, one at their head, one at their feet. And no matter how coordinated and fast they are, it's impossible. You know, uh, the harder they try to hit them away, the more water they spill, you know. Uh, And then I say, all right, now let's try it. Let's try doing it a different way. I'm going to throw those thoughts and feelings at you. And this time, just let them bounce off you and just focus on holding the glass still. And they don't spill a drop the second time. So what about if you just kind of learn how to do this for real? You know, this is just a, a little exercise, but you can learn how to do exactly this with your real thoughts and feelings.
0: What's, um, I, I think that's a brilliant exercise, and I think oh, I'm, thank you. Thank I'm you definitely very much. going to try that one. Um, we'll do it in an office. When we're allowed back in the office, I'll get the CEO <laughs> of a company to stand there and spill water all over his floor. Um, <laughs> we do it with a glass of oh. wine. Oh, oh, you, yeah, yeah! No, you don't want to be wasting any wine, Lou. <laughs> well, exactly.
2: I'll be
1: like, "Back the way, be easy." I not spill a drop. Just a tip: if you're if you are doing it with uh, elite sportsmen, you've got to make it hard. You have to kind of uh, throw like one at the foot and one at the head at the same time. Someone who's not an elite sportsman, you don't have to be that uh, challenging. But if you don't want to spill water, you know, you could use a pile of Jenga blocks or something like that.
0: We, we have to not only know that our brain works a certain way, which is, but we actually then have to learn how to work with it because our brain is, it's silly. It's just silly the way it's evolved. <laughs> it's like, it's not evolved in a helpful way. But the other thing I was thinking when you're talking is that, you know, you'll say fight or flight to someone and they, they understand that, they know that's stress. They know that's a stress response. Um, and you, there are certain things that you say to people that they know, but I think people don't, we're not taught in a whole so we're not taught where that fits so you can have stress and you can have use stress so what does that mean how does that fit with everything else and I think we're taught these bits and bobs all over the place and I think that's personally I think that's a danger of what we're doing in schools we're going in and we're only teaching mindfulness it's like but how does that fit with everything else because if it doesn't fit it's not actually very useful and in that sense I think the way you described act earlier as a process um, is immensely helpful because it holds it all together. It says, this is the way the brain evolved. This is what life is about. It's about meaning, it's about purpose, it's about values. And these are the different things that you can try to help you to to live with this. Do you think that, I mean, do you think we're taught enough? Do you think we're taught at all?
1: I don't think we're taught enough. I mean, I I, initially I was excited about mindfulness getting into schools, but the the reports I hear about the way it's typically taught, uh, you know, obviously I got direct reports from my son about what they were doing and he is like, Dad, this is nothing like what you do, you know. Uh, so they were doing like mindful coloring books, you know, like, like coloring in mindfully is not going to help you if you're in a really challenging, difficult situation. A lot of uh, what they're taught is just relaxation techniques. You know, they're not taught uh, how to, um, you know, deal with a, an emotional storm blowing up inside you or a barrage of kind of harsh, negative thinking or, um. Uh, you know, how to be mindful and focus your attention in a really challenging, stressful situation. And uh, I mean, not just schools, but as mindfulness is, it's interesting that like when I wrote The Happiness Trap back in 2007, it first came out. Mindfulness was not really a very well-known word. And so I don't actually mention it until about halfway through the book. I kind of introduce it by stealth and then say, oh, you've been doing mindfulness. Um, now it's a very well-known word, but there's all sorts of unhelpful ideas. People think it's relaxation, positive thinking, uh, Buddhism, meditation, uh, you know, a way to control your feelings. And, and none of that is, I would say, it's certainly how we we look at mindfulness from an perspective so there's lots of problematic ideas out there that the most common mistaking it for a form of relaxation and you know and, and when i have clients come to me and they say i've i've tried mindfulness and it didn't work uh, uh, i give them a piece of paper and i say all right well th- this paste paper this represents all the kind of stressful thoughts and feelings show me what were you hoping would happen to this when you did mindfulness and they throw the piece of paper on the floor And I said, well, look, this isn't a way to kind of get rid of those difficult thoughts and feelings. And then I take them through a different exercise where I get them kind of holding the sheet of paper and pushing it as far away as they possibly can, and feeling how tiring and distracting and exhausting it is trying to push that sheet of paper away. uh, And then get them to rest it gently on their lap and notice how much less effort that is and how they can just let it sit there and how much easier it is to kind of focus their attention on what they're doing when they're not struggling with this stuff. And they're like, oh, I never knew that, you know.
0: Revelation bit yeah. of revelation but you know a societal level do, what do you think we can do I mean I know you've done a huge amount in terms you look at the number of ratings you've got on Amazon I'm like whoa I've got 130 something you've got like several thousand I think so your book's definitely sure. getting out there yeah I think so um <laughs> so your book's definitely getting out there which means that your message is what well, your vehicle for that message is getting out there as well. what do you think we could do? I mean, do you have views on what we could do at a societal level to to
1: yeah well you know I think it would be great uh, and there are um, uh, uh, kind of app based courses that are now starting to be designed for schools um, uh, also you know if parents could start teaching their kids these messages that would be great too I I remember again you know must have been about seven my son was you know he didn't want to go upstairs because it was dark and he was scared Uh, and the voice in my head said don't be silly there's nothing to be scared of Um, and that was my programming but luckily I heard that voice in my head and I didn't speak it out aloud and what i said was you know when i was your age i was scared of the dark too it's completely normal and natural where are you feeling that are your hearts racing okay so notice you can have this fear and you can still move your arms and legs and walk up the stairs even though you're feeling scared yes dad (laughs) (laughs) but um i i you know i think it's it's gonna i think is if those of us who have still got uh, young kids uh, that are, are you know learning these messages we can start passing them on to our kids from a very young age then that can be incredibly helpful i, I think it's um uh and then um podcasts like this i think also very important <laughs> i mean it's it's spreading the word isn't it really you know is, uh exactly those instinctual
2: thoughts because when you say that I'm like I have those same thoughts that you know yeah it's not scary it's just the dark nothing's going to happen just move on and actually it, you know because that's how I was brought up too yeah so stop notice that thought and go actually there's a better thought that's going to be more helpful here is hard that's hard and that's going to take a while for for people to to, to to be able to do that to go through that process
1: well, that, that's true. I mean, that's the thing. You know, these are these are new skills that we're teaching people. They're not totally new skills. Most of us have got these skills to some extent, but they're skills that really need a lot of practice to to, to build up. It's not like you just read a book or listen to a podcast and it's like, hey, <clears throat> um, the ideas are actually quite easy to get. It's the it's it's actually practicing the the skills over and over uh, to to literally rewire your brain i I mean i think one of my favorite act sayings is that the the brain doesn't you know there's no delete button in the brain you can't just kind of delete any of those negative programs or those deeply entrenched negative thoughts. The brain works by addition, not subtraction. So we can add new thoughts in and new ways of thinking into what we do, but we can't just pull out the old ones or, or to talk in terms of neuroplasticity. The brain doesn't change by pulling out old neuronal pathways. It changes by adding new ones on top of the old ones. So if if your mind's been telling you, you know, don't be scared of the dark, that's silly. You're not going to be able to eliminate that thought but you can notice it and catch it and choose to come up with something that's a bit more validating of your child's experience you know
2: well I get your point what? I think my, my internet's not very good today uh, I get your point in terms of what are the key messages to get out to people well
1: I think the number one message is, is- is that, uh, is that life is painful and the things that we really care about, the things that matter most, don't just come with, with pleasant feelings. They come with lots of painful feelings too, whether that's building a career or, or building a, a marriage or, or developing a strong relationship or raising kids or even something as just fundamental as looking after your physical health. All of those meaningful things that we do in life Uh, come with painful feelings Uh, and I guess the the message that would go with that is that you can learn new more effective skills to to take the impact out of painful feelings and learn how to let them flow through you without getting swept away by them Um, uh, um, that there are skills that can help you do this so you don't have to get into a battle with your feelings or resort to desperate methods to try to avoid them.
0: Yeah. And I, I, and I, but the thing that's interesting there is, um, people don't always want to hear that, that life is painful.
1: <laughs> it's not purely painful. But, I no, no, know. no, I know. I mean, I know
0: what you mean, but I just think, yeah. I think adults sort of older adults, um, you know, 30 plus would say, yes, I get that. You know, I've kind of realized that now, but if you say it to someone in their twenties, they're like, Oh, but surely there's a way to fix this. You know, and I don't <laughs> want to do all that stuff. Um,
1: yeah, I guess I, I guess it depends at what age they hear this message. But you know, if 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 as if we can have kids learning this message from a young age that life is difficult. I mean, you know, it's like uh, if you're gonna learn to play a video game, there's gonna be frustration and disappointment. I do involved. love your
0: analogies. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's brilliant because that's gonna so resonate with a kid. Can you write yeah. a children's book, please? An adolescent, a book for adolescents.
1: <laughs> but, it's, you know, there's no way to, you know, get, get, get it to a higher level in a video game without, without some pain and disappointment and frustration. And, you know, for, for teenagers, you know, a good analogy is learning to drive a car, you know, how much anxiety is involved in learning to drive a car but you're willing to make room for that anxiety because you want the autonomy you want to be able to drive so are you willing to make room for these difficult thoughts and feelings in order to do the stuff that's important you know
0: I can see Lou you see Lou you say you've got a delay but what Lou does is she comes up with gems of comments I can see her thinking and I can see her brain wearing. and I'm waiting I'm waiting for you what's your next gem Lou come on (laughs) <laughs> on but it's a
2: gem. Yeah. I was I was just interested in, interested in terms of you know uh I guess it's it's the skills and psychological resources you have and during a pandemic like uh, we've talked about in our past podcasts that actually what what strategies used to help us in the past maybe have more psychological flexibility aren't necessarily the strategies that have helped us in a pandemic because you know exercise and being able to be social and you know connecting with people just hasn't happened so we're in our homes have we developed that and i guess it's that if we want to have room for some of those painful thoughts and feelings how do we create that room and is there like i I guess my thought at that time like I feel like I'm full up. There's so much of my room that's full up with all those feelings at times. How do I manage that? That was kind of my thought at the time.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, it's been very hard, isn't it? Like we in Melbourne, I've lost track. I think we had Ten weeks of total lockdown the second time, and it was, uh, it was, it was challenging. I mean, a big, big part of the app model is is self compassion. Uh, you know, it's not just about accepting your painful feelings; it's also about being there in a kind and caring and supportive way for yourself. Uh and so self-compassion is is also a skill that most of us uh haven't really learned, you know, unless you were lucky enough to be raised in a in a family uh where you had really truly compassionate parents, you probably didn't learn uh, you know, certainly not a traditional English language, stiff up a lip old chap, <laughs> take it on the chin, whatever. <sighs> It's uh oh gosh your legs being shot off well don't make a fuss you know um uh so uh learning how to uh, acknowledge your pain and be there in a kind way which is which is you know it's not self-pity it's not kind of um uh and it's not kind of indulging or dwelling on it it's about learning what a kind supportive words deeds and actions that you can do for yourself to to help you in times when you're really suffering um you know, the, the, when when there is no magic uh, uh, solution uh, where you can't just escape from that really difficult situation. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, it really. To... I was going to say, there's a really Sorry, cool. Russ. Bit...
2: Have there been Are there any part? Go on. Go You're on. just trying
0: to make my editing more difficult, Lou. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's a very exciting um paper published in the lancet uh last year lancet being a, a british medical journal that's one of the top uh peer-reviewed scientific journals in the world and it was uh, on the use of act in refugee camps uh and it was a, a study that was run by the world health organization um and i, I was very uh lucky to be invited to be the the main author of the protocol that they've been using uh, i wasn't involved in the research but kind of in the writing of the protocol now this is a 10-hour app protocol that they've been using in refugee camps in syria uganda turkey um i forget which other countries and uh, it's just 10 hours so basically uh, people in these refugee camps um They they do it as a five-week program, two hours a week. Uh, All the ACT exercises are audio recordings. So they sit around in a group and they listen to them and they practice them. Um, And this particular study that was published was a a huge randomized control trial. Uh, It was uh, South Sudanese uh, women in a Ugandan refugee camp. Most of them had had multiple traumas, domestic violence, the upheavals of warfare, the ongoing challenge. Can you imagine living in a a camp of 250,000 refugees? Um, And the World Health Organization wanted to see, is there something we can do uh, or something they could do to help people in that awful situation? There is no you know you can't just magically change the government give people food and water and shelter they're going to be in that awful situation for a long time uh, and so they wanted to see you know is there something practical that could help well the, the results were pretty astonishing you know from from this 10-hour intervention uh, there were significant reductions in uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and depression uh, and uh You know, uh, and that was just from people sitting around listening to audio recordings uh, and and practicing the exercises. So, you know, uh, key elements of that program we're learning how to kind of drop an anchor when an emotional storm blows up so that you don't get carried away by it uh getting in touch with the values you know while you're in that you can't magically get out of the refugee camp but all day long you can choose to live by your values how do you treat the people in your tent how do you treat the people outside of your tent um and uh you can learn how to unhook from all those difficult thoughts that show up in your head learn how to make room for all those difficult feelings that show up in your body and learn how to be compassionate to yourself and to others uh, that are in similar pain so these things are are practical and doable even in in the most awful situations
0: that's absolutely remarkable Um, that's mind-blowing that i think the fact that it's so simple so simple it's but it's it's getting the right information in the right way to people what's next for you
1: well, funnily enough, I'm just in the editing process right now of a textbook called Trauma-Focused Act, which um, will be coming out in December and uh, does, um, to a large extent, kind of uh, build on that work that, uh, that uh, I did with the World Health Organization and I think uh, takes act into new areas uh, of... of um, of working with trauma um so uh that's uh that's my big project right now
0: that's really exciting um i've got a whole load of things i want to say to you like lou a whole load of things a whole load of questions a whole load of thoughts a whole load of ideas but uh,
1: i wonder if it's just worth mentioning that um <laughs> i have a book the reality slap uh which is all about grief and loss and i've just rewritten it um, because of uh, all of the, the pandemic and the, the huge kind of amount of grief and loss that's out there. So the brand new second editions coming out in the UK on March the 25th and If anyone has read the first edition, this is about 50% new material. It's very, very specifically about grief and loss and how you can use ACT to to deal with that and cope with those losses and rebuild your life. So available in all good bookstores and also in some of the crappy bookstores.
0: (laughs) That is amazing. Russ. thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing. And I think um, it's given me some thoughts about stuff I can do more broadly but i think hopefully it's given listeners ideas insights to how they might take a slightly new journey how they might um live a slightly more hopefully a lot more fulfilled life
1: thank you thank you you
0: so much